So I think sometimes if you were to dabble in Middle Eastern cuisine and open up a book that has a recipe that has 10 different spices in it, and you're overwhelmed just because you don't have half of them. Welcome to Homemade from All Recipes. I'm Marty Duncan. On this show, we celebrate good food, the people who make it, and the stories behind the recipes. And today, my guest is a woman who travels the world as a culinary diplomat. You know her as a judge on Food Network's Chopped, and you've seen her compete on some of TV's most prestigious cooking competitions, including Iron Chef America. These days, she's also cooking from her home in a new series called It's Easy AF. Now, I like to create a whirlpool in my water just because when the egg goes in, it immediately starts to get cooked in a very circular motion. Her cookbook, The Chef Next Door, a pro chef's recipes for fun and fearless home cooking, is one of my favorite go-to books. Y'all, everybody say hey and welcome to Chef Amanda Freitag. Hey there. Hi, thanks for having me. I want to get to know a little bit more about you, the non-cooking you first, before we dive into all these fantastic competitions and all the tips that you can give our audience when it comes to cooking at home. I know you grew up in New Jersey. I did. Believe it or not, even with this accent, my daddy grew up in New Jersey also. Really? Yeah. He graduated from Plainfield High School in Plainfield, New Jersey, but he came to Alabama and never left. Oh, wow. So did you grow up in a house that was a cooking household? Was your home a place where y'all cooked a lot as a family? No. So it was kind of the opposite of that. I was kind of a latchkey kid and I have two older brothers and both my parents worked. And so my grandfather, he was kind of our babysitter. He was there after school and we were pretty much on our own. And, you know, it was a typical upbringing where suburbs, everybody was busy. Parents were working. Dinner just had to get thrown on the table. So it wasn't like I grew up on my mom's or dad's apron strings. I fell in love with the restaurant business by working in a restaurant when I was a teenager. I never did that. My brother did. And I was always a little bit envious of those big tips. I worked at JCPenney. I didn't get any tips. My brother would come on with a pocket full of money. I'm like, I might be in the wrong business over here. That was a good incentive. Yes. But I did read somewhere that you got some encouragement to go to the Culinary Institute of America from your home ec teacher. Yes, my home ec teacher, Ms. Joan Levine, was working in a restaurant on the weekends, which, of course, you know, when you're a kid and you're in school, you never picture your teachers doing anything but teach, and that's their life. Um, But she had a whole life outside of that. And I was really interested in restaurant world and chefs and European chefs. And I was obviously see her star student because nobody else in home ec even paid attention. (laughs) (laughs) She told me that there was a school and I was fascinated by it because like I said, again, in the U.S. at that time, being a chef was blue collar labor. It was. It absolutely was. Yeah. It wasn't a highly regarded career like it was in Europe. So I followed a lot of European chefs when I could read or watch on television. And I went with her and my parents on a tour of the Culinary Institute of America. At the time, they would run these things called the Taste of the CIA. And we went up to beautiful Hyde Park, New York, and went to the campus. And all of these chefs were walking around with their big white toques and their neckerchiefs and their crispy uniforms. And it looked like 
nirvana to me. <laughs> I just, These are my people. I found my people. Yeah. You hit the mothership. It was what I wanted. It seems untouchable, but I still wanted it. It's remarkable to me that you had a teacher that was that invested in your career and your future to go with you and your parents to check it all out. I thank her constantly and I am so grateful for that. And my family's a family of educators, actually. My grandmother was a librarian. My oldest brother's a professor. My middle brother is a school counselor. So it only makes sense now that a lot of what I'm doing is teaching and talking food all the time. Most of what you do is teaching, even when you're competing you're teaching people at home. I learn a lot from those competition shows. Okay, so we've been going through this whole coronavirus shutdown. Have you been binge-watching anything? I'm a huge fan of the Great British Baking Show. Me too! Uh, I'm in love with it, and I've watched them all, so my little nighttime calming television is watching that over and over again. I watch my favorite seasons, my favorite contestants. Me too. I love it, and Paul too. I think he's quite handsome. All right. So what about music? Is there any music that you're listening to you want to share with us right now? Because everybody's home there, every, you know, you're on Zoom calls, you're on phone calls. Everybody knows you're home and accessible. So I never get off the phone. So I've been giving myself Saturdays to turn the phone off and just turn on music. I've been doing the same thing. Yeah. And cook. When I do my housework. Yeah. It's really great. I have a very eclectic taste in music. So the last couple of days, I've been listening to a lot of Prince because it was the anniversary of his passing. Right. But on Saturdays, I have actually been just listening to some old school classic rock when I've been cooking. That's my favorite. Yeah, it's been great because it just takes me to another time and takes me back. And I don't think about it because it's just familiar. Well, let's go back since we're talking about the, the old school stuff. So even though you grew up latchkey with not a lot of cooking in your house, were there any special recipes or family favorites that you have for holidays or things like that? The great thing that happened um, was my dad, who his everyday job was a systems analyst, very analytical mind. He got interested in pastry while I was in culinary school. He started to dabble in it and then really found a passion for it. Wow. So he started baking a lot. He really liked the technical stuff. We got him some cooking classes, baking classes that he took. And he was an excellent baker. I'm an impatient baker. I like savory. I mix and stir and taste. Baking as a science. And once that thing goes in the oven, that's it. <laughs> Your chances of fixing it are over. And he was fantastic at it. So he started to serve up things that were his favorites on holidays, big cakes for us. Every Christmas, we would have a cookie called the Pecan Tassie that has this beautiful, it's like a baby, almost pecan pie. It's a cream cheese dough with the pecan filling. We make those too. Those are really big around our family for the holidays. Yeah, and it would just fill up the house with just these wonderful aromas. And he also, I have a couple of his recipes in my book. He had a beef stew that he would... I saw that. Oh, that beef stew. Pops, beer braise, bold beef stew. I was going to talk to you about that. I wondered if that was your daddy's recipe. It is. And he would take out this cast iron Dutch oven, which was so heavy, nobody else could lift it, and put it on the stove. And he took his time and just the smell of the onions. And he would use red wine and dark beer. And that thing just cooked for hours. And the silly fun part about it is a lot of times he would serve it in a bread bowl. It was just kind of cheesy, but it was so good. 
good. <laughs> oh, wow. Who wouldn't like that, though? That sounds delicious. Now, in your book, do you have the recipe with, was it mashed potatoes? Yes, I highly recommend it with the smashed potatoes that I have in the book. But obviously, you can serve it with anything as long as you've got something to soak up that delicious braising liquid. It sounds fantastic. I can't wait to make that. One thing I also wanted to talk about, and while we're in the the Wayback Machine, let's go back to when you did your very first Iron Chef appearance. Ah. Was that when you had to battle Bobby Flay? Yes, that was 2008, I believe. I was asked to do it, and I said no at first. <laughs> Which was really funny because at the time I had a PR representative at the restaurant where I was the chef and he called and he said, did you say no to Iron Chef? And I said, yeah, I don't do that stuff. I don't you make caramel cages and exploding ketchup. And <laughs> right. he was like, um, it would be really good for the restaurant and I think you'd love it. So I think you should do it. And I was like, oh, okay. And it was a great day and it was a new experience for me. Obviously, we're competitive as chefs in restaurants, but I didn't realize personally that I was a very competitive person. Oh, yeah. I recognize that about you. You're very competitive. I didn't know until that very day because I was never into sports. So I didn't really get it about myself until then. And so, wow, I wanted to win. I felt the adrenaline, the rush. And, you know, I lost by one point. That's so hard. One point. Uh, heartbreaking. Be frustrating. Still, it was Iron Chef Bobby Flay, and it was just one point. Great experience. That's a win. It was a huge win for me because that was my first thing I ever did on Food Network. And then I got connected to the woman who created Chopped, and then Chopped started that same year. So that was a big year for me. And you're still on Chopped now. Yes. Do you ever have anything you just won't eat when, I mean, I look at some of those things, I'm like, I wouldn't eat it. I'm not eating that. I would not eat it. Do you ever feel that way? I feel that way quite often, but I have to eat it. <laughs> and there are many, many things that I see the ingredients and I think, oh my God, I really don't want to eat this. And I'm not alone in that sentiment. You know, we'll turn to each other and we'll be like, wait a minute really? And I have to give so much credit to the chefs. They find a way to transform. They make something out of nothing. And honestly, it's always a surprise. They make things I could never dream of. And in 30 minutes, come on. Yeah. Are you kidding me? You're coming up with some of these things, two ice creams and a cake, and you've done it in 30 minutes. I don't know how anybody does that. I just don't think people who watch realize how difficult it truly is. It's not a lot of time. And it's, it's a lot of pressure. A lot of very skilled chefs don't do well in that environment. It's about the tips and tricks and how to be fast and how to put flavor in in a short amount of time. It's not necessarily about your pedigree all the time. I know just from doing Food Network Star that sometimes it is really about taking a second to get organized too. Oh, yeah. The organization and the prep is the hard part so that you're not running to the pantry 62 times. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, you can definitely experience a blank brain as soon as you see those ingredients. And the only way to get your juices flowing is to start to do something. Cut an onion. Start to taste what's in the basket. You have to do something because I've been there before. I've opened that basket and completely blank. Oh, my God. Well, you're cooking these days on your YouTube channel, yeah. which I absolutely love. I've been watching and following along with your It's Easy AF. What a great name for that. Thank you. Because for those of you who don't know, my initials. 
Yes, her initials, and you know what it means, too. I don't have to tell you. But you've done some really fun things. I like the risotto one because you really demystify risotto for us and explain how the starch works in the dish. And I thought it was really, you're a good teacher, a really good teacher. Thank you. I really enjoy teaching. And the most rewarding part to me is when somebody, I'm doing class in person, obviously they'll tell me how much they loved it. Or when somebody comes back with feedback after watching one of the videos and said, I was so afraid to do that and I did it and I feel so confident now. And I love knowing that just a little bit of instruction and guidance can help somebody up their culinary game or do something they were afraid to do. And I wanted to do more of the basics in my videos so that people aren't intimidated. I think people are afraid to ask, you know what? I don't know how to cut an onion. And I'm just afraid to even say that out loud. Or, you know what? I really have never poached an egg how am I going to figure that out? So I think it's really important to have the basics that people can at least just experience what it's like to be in the kitchen. Sometimes if you don't feel confident at all, you're not even going to go in there. I think the one thing that you also do that is helpful to novice cooks or people who are maybe a little bit afraid in the kitchen is that you take the time to explain how it works. And I think that helps to take the mystery out of some of the things too. And you take your time doing that, which I think is so important because a lot of times chefs will breeze through that stuff and just assume, you know, even me, I'm a cook. I cook for a living. Sometimes I don't know because I'm not a restaurant chef. So I haven't done it 365 times a year for years and years on end. So I don't know. And so those, the way that you take your time and explain it, I think is quite helpful. Thank you. It's important for people to understand why something works that way. And then they can translate it into other things. In your cooking, you use a lot of over-the-top ingredients. I know you do a lot of Asian things, but now that we're stuck kind of pantry cooking or refrigerator cooking, what is your go-to dish while we're sheltering in place? That's such a good question because I have been cooking constantly. And, you know, I also love the flavors of the Mediterranean and Italian food. It's changed. You know, that first week we were on lockdown, I cooked a lot of pasta. Yeah, me too. Beans and rice and baked dishes. I made lasagna. And now I'm finding that I can have a little more access to other things. So I've been doing you know, like a classic roast chicken. I've been tapping into grains like lentils. And I made some meatloaf last weekend, which I know sounds so comforting and boring, but my meatloaf came out so good. <laughs> I don't think it sounds boring at all. I think it sounds delicious. I grabbed just a couple of simple simple bold condiments, which I think is is my recommendation to anybody who's stocking a pantry. Have those things like mustard in your pantry to use. Have Worcestershire to spice things up. Keep capers on hand to throw into pasta or vegetables, things like that that are briny and pickly. So I really, I, I zinged my meatloaf up with a lot of mustard and ketchup and Worcestershire and it came out great. That sounds like my mama's meatloaf, actually. Yeah. My cousin just gave me my my mom's meatloaf recipe, which I've never had. And it was in her handwriting and it was on her stationery and she ran across it in her mother's recipe box. So that was such a treasure to get that. So tell me, how do you make your meatloaf? Like, do you cook it in a pan? Do you freeform it? I freeformed it because I was making two and I only had one loaf pan and a baby loaf pan. And I took a pilgrimage to New Jersey and brought my mom. So I made sort of two of everything. So I brought her some cooked food and she loved 
I bet she did. I bet she said, you can quarantine with me. <laughs> Do all the cooking. Yeah, you know, she was very happy because she's lonely. And even though we social distance, she ate the food and felt the love in the food. Uh, so I did it free form. And I used a mix that was pork, beef, and veal, like a meatball. And so super tender. Did you put any breadcrumbs or bread in it? I did. I always put breadcrumb and egg. Yeah, my mom did too. Yeah, inside of my meatloaf. And I always do a little ketchup glaze on top. Me too. It's tradition. You kind of have to. I think any of those ketchup naysayers are really missing out. <laughs> I do too, because that's part of the comfort food, isn't it? I've been making also a lot of potato gnocchi. I have had a few like virtual cooking events and I've been demonstrating potato gnocchi. So I've had leftover gnocchi around. Um, I'm serving it up with some pesto. I browned it in the pan the other day with just some brown butter and cheese. Oh, that sounds delicious. Will you walk me through that really quick? Now, if I want to make the gnocchi at home, how do I make it? Oh my God. My gnocchi recipe is so satisfying because first of all, it's easy and it comes out fluffy and light. They're not dense. I want that. I use Idaho potatoes and I cook them with the skin on. Okay. The key is to work with them when they're hot. Okay. And then I peel them when they're totally cooked and I put them through a ricer and then they get seasoned with salt and pepper. And then I add two egg yolks to two potatoes, half a cup of flour, and then I roll them. Oh my gosh, that sounds so good. And then what did you say you were doing for your sauce? I've made this a couple of times. So initially I just had a homemade marinara, which I love. Oh, I saw your video for homemade marinara. I highly recommend while you're cooking at home to start making your own because obviously you've probably stocked up on canned tomatoes and I think it's a way better flavor profile than the jarred sauce. Ooh, me too. But I got a hold of some herbs last week, which was great. And I made a pesto. So then I had par-cooked some of the gnocchi and then chilled it because I was just going to pop it in the freezer and save it. Right. And... I ended up heating up a pan real, real hot with just a little bit of olive oil, put the gnocchi in, in one single layer and I got it crispy. Oh, yeah. And then I threw in a little pat of butter and the butter turned brown and I had some cheese. <laughs> it was so you know all the right words to say. I can't <laughs> wait to get up from this and go in my kitchen, start making gnocchi. I have all those things. I'm going to go and do it. Sounds amazing. I love making it because it's just like playing in the kitchen. It's so creative. We'll have more with Chef Amanda Freitag right after the break. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Welcome back to Homemade. I'm Marty Duncan, and today I'm talking with Chef Amanda Freitag. I meant to ask you this earlier, but I just was addicted, like most of America. I was addicted to Guy Fieri's Tournament of Champions show. I was so shocked when I saw all of you, like all you superstars came out to battle in that thing. I'm like, oh boy, Guy must have really had to 
twist some arms because, you know, he's known for his dastardly tricks. Oh, yeah. I did grocery game. Did you compete in? I did with Justin. Justin and I did it together on a team's thing, Justin Warner and myself. And we won. So that was really fun. That's a hard thing to do. Well, Justin's judged a lot and he's competed a lot on that show. He has a photographic memory. I don't know if you know that about him, but he does. And he can remember where every single thing in that grocery store is because I would still be in there if it was me. I would still be <laughs> They would have had to go and get the police department or something to come get me out. I'd still be there. But um, <laughs> Justin knew where everything was. So that was amazing. And we had so much fun, but he's known for his dirty tricks and his whammy. And so I saw this thing and I saw you superstars come out and then he goes, oh, and by the way, we have this randomizer. Oh, the randomizer. Oh my God. When I was standing in front of that thing, I was just a ball of nerves. It never lands on what you want it to land on. No, and you have to think it's rigged because there's no way it's going to give you something like, (laughs) I don't know, fish sauce and a waffle iron. I don't know. You know, it was one of the most challenging competitions competitions I'd ever done. Every competition has a different twist to it. But I think with the randomizer, with the judging being blind, blind tasting, it was really truly a step above all the other competitions. The fairness level, obviously, and the suspense and watching people who are such great chefs not be able to make it to the next round was fascinating to me. It was to us watching at home too. That was really unbelievable. Yeah. And I think part of what you said was the blind judging. I had never known in any of these competitions for there to be a completely 100% blind judging. That's completely new. And of course, leave it up to Guy to do that. And I think it was great because he thought outside the box. It's different than any other competition show that we've seen. And he really kind of cracked the code on that. I, I enjoyed it because I think the fairness level was high. They had asked me to do grocery games and I said no for a long time because after Food Network started, I'm like, God, I'm just, no, I'm never doing another cooking competition. But it was so fun. And Guy and his team and the producers, they're just so good at what they do. And they make it, even when it's stressful, they make it hospitable and fun. And they're all lovely to deal with. And so it's a fun experience, even though it's terrifying to a certain degree. That's what I always say about Chopped. You know, we've done so many episodes of Chopped. And sometimes chefs will come up to me at events or meet and greets. And they'll say, oh, you chopped me or I was on Chopped or this or that. We don't always remember everybody. I mean, we've filmed over 600 episodes. Yeah. My first question to them is, well, did you have a good experience? And everybody always says, yes, and you have a great crew, and I did. And to me, that's the most important thing, honestly, because only one out of the four are going to win. Right. And everybody else just needs to have a really good experience. And I think anytime you're under that sort of pressure, you learn a lot about yourself as a person and as a chef. You sure do. I think that you can take away a lot from it. And I think for me, when I'm judging, I try to teach the contestant a little bit about themselves too and what they may not see. Amanda, speaking of Chopped, what is one of the biggest mistakes that chefs make when they come to a competition like that? Being over ambitious. 
I think that's a big one, isn't it? I know chefs want to show off while they're there. They want to show us what they got. And I've made this mistake myself. And you try to do too much because you want to do it. You have one chance and you want to show off. And I think you just have to focus on a few really good items with really good flavor and not try and do too much because honestly, you don't have time. You just don't. Well, hey, summer's just around the corner. And I know you love to cook with the best and freshest ingredients that you can find. What summer produce are you looking most forward to? And if you could grow a garden of things, what would you grow outside your house? That's such a great question. Well, as a Jersey girl, the Garden State, I really look forward to tomatoes and I don't ever get sick of them. I truly don't. Tomato salads, fresh tomato sauces, roasted tomatoes, tomato jam, any kind of tomato you can think of, I'll take it. Grilled tomatoes. Now, do you ever make a tomato sandwich? Sure, of course. Like Alabama style, like white bread, mayonnaise, salt and pepper. That's it. I probably usually toast my bread and there's usually an avocado on there because I just always have a little California love in me. Now, I've never really grilled a tomato very often. You just slice an olive oil and salt and pepper and just put them flat on the grill. Is that it? Yes. I do a nice thick slice, just a little bit of olive oil because you don't want too much flare up. Always salt. Salt and tomato is a must. And then I just go on the hot spot. Really? Quick here on both sides. Just to bring the sugars out? Is that what it's for? It just starts to melt the tomato a little, gives it a tiny bit of a char. I love to have that with steak. Simple, delicious, and just a little cook on the tomato. You know, when they're ripe and beautiful, they don't need much. That's right. But when you get a little heat on them, they start to give off their juices and it changes the game. Well, I've been home during the lockdown. I have planted about 20 tomato plants outside in my new raised bed. So I'm going to be grilling some tomatoes this summer. So thank Thank you for that. Yeah, I look forward to sun gold tomatoes as well. The, the sun gold cherry tomatoes are so delicious. They're like candy. All right. So we're getting close to the weekend. If you're going to whip up a big batch of cocktails, what's your go-to cocktail? Well, I'm a tequila girl. So I was experimenting with a frozen margarita last weekend and my refrigerator was not keeping up with the ice production. <laughs> <laughs> so I have some of the base in my freezer. So I'm going to conquer this. And it's a mezcal margarita inspired by my friend. TJ Steele has a restaurant uh, called Claro in Brooklyn. And he makes these unbelievable, delicious frozen margaritas with mezcal. That sounds delicious. Tequila and mezcal. And, you know, one of my favorite things that guy does is he has his tequila mezcal brand. Yeah. What is it called? Santo. Santo. Yeah. It's so delicious. Is it? I think just mezcal on its own for me is overly smoky. I love tequila. So a little bit of that smokiness really counteracts the sweet and sour. It's so delicious. I love it. So I'm definitely going to whip up the rest of that frozen margarita and see if I can conquer it, get it to that slushy consistency. But typically I just like tequila with grapefruit. That's one of my favorites too. What a beautiful combination, like a nice grapefruit juice with tequila. Yeah. Tequilas are all the rage right now. Um, Bourbon's for it for a long time. But now when it comes to parties and things, a lot of people are doing instead of bourbon bars are doing tequila bars with tequila tasting. I think it's fun because you can really play around with flavors uh, right at the beginning of the quarantine as well.
well, somebody sent me a delicious bottle from 21 Seeds, and the tequila is a mix of cucumber and jalapeno infusion. Oh, wow. I honestly, I put it over ice with lime. That was it. And you got really good flavor, a little bit of spice, a little bit of freshness from the cucumber. It was fantastic. Well, for all of you at home who don't have a great ice maker, mine's broken. It's been broken for about 20 <laughs> years. And so I have ice trays and I make my own ice. But I do keep in the summertime a big container, a big plastic container of a base of some sort, whether it's lime or whatever it happens to be. And you freeze it and then you sit it out right before you start to mix. You add your tequila, it becomes slushy. And then you just pour them up. It's so easy and so fun. You don't need a blender. So delicious. All right. So tequila, it is for Friday night cocktails. Right. You know, you've done something that I am probably almost every single person listening to this podcast would like to do. You traveled extensively through France and Italy and you explored the markets and the restaurants and the food scenes and all these places. So let's pretend we're off of lockdown and we can travel anywhere we want to go. Give me your top two or three experiences or places that if we do get to go back to France and Italy, that may be something we could look forward to? Well, you know, I've been so fortunate. I'm so lucky to be able to travel with friends, travel for work. Last year, I was in Jordan. Oh, wow. And I can't even describe to you what a wonderful experience that was. I would have never gone on my own. I'm involved in something called the Culinary Diplomacy Project, and it connects people all over the world through food. And everybody sits down at a table, and it's a universal language. So we went on that trip with the woman who runs the organization and the flavors of the Middle East are just addictive and wonderful. And the feasts, every meal is a feast. Every meal is a feast and they take such time and patience to go through a long, drawn out experience for all the meals, even coffee. Even coffee. Oh, their coffee is delicious. And I love all of the flavor profiles, working with tahini, all the different yogurts and labne and zaftar and sumac and the flatbreads that they make. You know, at every table, there's always the flatbread that's so delicious. The dried fruits, the dates. Oh my God, the dates. The dates. And the markets, all the markets that you can go to, like the fresh, big, open spice markets, where you can go and just pick up all the most amazing things in the planet. Oh, it's heavenly to me. It's just heavenly. So that was probably the most exciting, most exotic trip I've ever taken because it was a place where I never thought I would go. And now I want to go back. Right. We got to go to Petra, which is one of the new seven wonders of the world. And we got to go to the desert of Wadi Rum. And again, a place where I never thought I would be. And everything was still around food. The love of food and the way food brings people together in that part of the world is so strong. And I just came back with that feeling of, wow, it really is true how you can connect people with food. It is the most unbelievable unifier because even if you have a difference of opinion with someone or a difference of upbringing or religion or politics, typically you can find some common ground over food. Yep. I know you use a lot of unusual spices, let's say for an everyday kitchen. A lot of times they'll Asian spices or whatever. How can somebody who is a bit fearful 
of incorporating something different. How can they go about just getting started with little baby steps? I personally rarely follow recipes, as you can tell, being the impatient baker. So I think sometimes if you were to, let's say, dabble in Middle Eastern cuisine and open up a book that has a recipe that has 10 different spices in it, and you're overwhelmed just because you don't have half of them. I say if you found, let's say, za'atar at the market, and you were like, okay, I've heard about this, I want to try it. Just use it by itself, right? On its own. So you can experience just the flavor of that, whether it be sprinkling it on your roast chicken breast that night, instead of just using oregano, use za'atar. Or mixing it into a little bit of yogurt to make a sauce or a dip. Try that one spice on its own and understand the flavors of it. And don't get intimidated. Add it to a dish that you've made before. Add it to something that you are familiar with. And then start to venture out with other flavors and other dishes. Because I think if you're diving into somebody else's ethnic cuisine and it's multi-layered, it can be very intimidating. So take those spices and bring them into your own cuisine and see which one you like. See if sumac is a perfect example and it's really lemony. If you've never had it before, you would be so surprised by it. Especially because some places, you know, everybody just thinks sumac is the poison. Right. The itchy poison ivy, poison oak sister. If you had it in a dish that had 10 other spices, you really wouldn't be able to just appreciate that sumac or know the flavor profile of it. So I think if you get new spices and you're playing with them, eat them as a singular spice at first and then decide what you think they should be blended with and then go from there. So is is it za'atar? Za'atar is, yeah. Tell me a little bit about, I don't even know what it is. It's a Middle Eastern spice. It is a wild oregano that's dried and pulverized. And it's mixed along with some sesame seed. And I believe there's also, there might even be a little bit of sumac inside of that blend. Everybody makes a different za'atar blend, but the green one is the most popular. And it's sprinkled on flatbreads and gives it the most wonderful herbal flavor. And there's always that sesame with it. Zatar in your chicken with a squeeze of lemon is just excellent. You have inspired me to try it. I'm going to run to the store and get it. I don't know where I'll find it near me out here in the country, but I will find it somewhere. But you've inspired me to try it because I mean, sometimes those things are intimidating and sometimes they're super expensive too. So you buy them and you think, God, I don't even know if I like it. And I got to spend $30 to get it. Right. Of course you want to use it if you've spent that money on it. Yes. You need to know how how, right? You know, right. I love the idea of starting with just a roast chicken and substituting one of your regular ingredients for something different because you know what a chicken tastes like. And so that's a great benign place for you to try new flavors. That's a great idea and not terribly expensive if you mess it up. So your website is amandafrytag.com. Yes. And then we can find you on YouTube. It's Easy AF. It's Easy AF. And also the Easy AF videos are on Instagram TV. So my Instagram is Chef Amanda. Amanda F. Chef Amanda F on Instagram TV. Okay, y'all, tune in, check out these videos. She's going to teach you how to be a better cook and teach you some new tips and tricks. Amanda, thank you so much for being with us here on Homemade. Thank you. That was Super Chef and Chop Judge Amanda Freitag. 
Coming up on the next episode of Homemade, we're talking comfort food and home cooking with Chef Carla Hall. The secret to making my peach cobbler, I take my peaches, I macerate them in the sugar and a little bit of lemon juice, brown sugar, a little bit of almond, and just let them sit. Then I put them on a sheet pan and let them cook in the oven for passive cooking. Because, you know, for soul food peach cobbler, those peaches need to be cooked and like dark, right? This conversation is going to make you so hungry. You don't want to miss Carla Hall, and you don't have to. Subscribe to the podcast right now. It's free, and you won't miss a single episode. And if you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or telling your friends about the program. And don't forget, you can find thousands of recipes, meal ideas, and cooking how-tos from the world's largest community of cooks at allrecipes.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This podcast was recorded in Birmingham, edited in Atlanta, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Homemade is produced by All Recipes with executive editor Jason Burnett. Thanks to our Pod People production team, Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, Tanya Ott, and Maya Cross. Thanks for listening. I'm Marty Duncan, and this is Homemade.